This is your host, Chris Walker, and today I am thrilled to have on the show the CMO of Recorded Future, Tom Wentworth. Tom, what's up, man? Happy to have you on the show. I feel like this is a long time coming. A big yeah, fan. a first time, long time. Isn't that what they say, Ray? <laughs> uh, yeah, thrilled to be here, too. Yeah, and so it's great. We were just talking before the episode about sort of like your career progression, and I think there's been an interesting sort of like this big MarTech rise that happened in the late 2000s and has continued to grow forward where it went from nothing being measured, at least not in the ways that we do today, to everything being measured down to attribution on every single lead and that whole process. And so we'd love to hear from your perspective, just like that progression, you've been through it all, if not most of it, if not at all, through that timeline. And just yeah. like, how has that gone for you and where do you sit on some of that stuff today? So I became a CMO. My story is weird. You know, I was a sales engineer for a long time, went into product marketing. And one day I was just asked, hey, can you be the CMO? And actually, no, can you be the VP of marketing? And I said, well, what about CMO? That sounds cooler. And my boss just gave me the title, I think, without knowing the difference. <laughs> um, I don't know if I even know the difference, to be honest with you. But this was in like 2009 or 10. And my fast track to becoming a CMO is to read every single piece of content that Mike Volpe at HubSpot and John Miller at Marketo put out. So my entire worldview of marketing was shaped by Mike and John, who were both great people. But you know, I became a student of the you know the lead funnel of the MQL to SAL to SQL or whatever those acronyms are, mm -hmm. and really focused on you know the Martech view of demand generation, and that worked well until it didn't. Yeah, when do you think that was? I'm sure that it was a gradual decline, but I started to feel that, I don't know, 2015, 16? Yeah, I think it was right around then. So, you know, I was at this company, Acquia, where we were a fast growth SaaS company and we followed the playbook and we built the lead scoring model and we had great attribution, you know, all the foundational things you're told to do as a CMO. But my entire focus was operating quarter to quarter to hit pipeline targets. So the entire marketing team was aligned around creating pipeline and we were really, we took it really seriously, but it was like, it was a struggle for us to get to our goals quarter to quarter. So we just, every, every dollar, every ounce of brain power was put towards hitting next quarter's goals. Long-term for us, we can't think long-term when we're trying to hit next quarter's pipeline target. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's interesting at that time that you were looking at pipeline, I figure a majority of companies were, were still looking at leads. Yeah. And so it just had made the jump there. So what did, I mean, I think there's, even if we go fundamental here, the difference between optimizing for leads and pipeline, would love to hear your sort of perspective on that. Funny, when I took over at marketing at Acquia, I was told there used to be a meeting between, you know, the former head of marketing, the CFO and the CEO. And it was classic example of the, the CMO would say, the leads are green. And the sales, the sales ops leader would say, but the pipeline is red. And it was a classic marketing celebrating, hitting a lead generation goal, sales wondering how they're going to get to next quarter's target and a huge disconnect, at least aligning around pipeline created a shared language. You know, there are some challenges with that too, that I can get into later, but we definitely moved away from leads as a success metric. We, we never even, you know, we reported MQLs as a leading metric, but it was not what we, you know, were gold against. It's interesting. I'd love to hear your perspective on this one. But when you change 
if you're existing right now and you're running off of a lead-based primary metric model in marketing and you move to a qualified pipeline metric, the reason to move to that metric is so that you can change your marketing execution. What I see right now in the, in the wild is a lot of companies reporting now, celebrating that they're reporting on pipeline, but doing all the same shit that they would do in a lead gen model. And so would love to hear, I mean, I'm sure that you've, I'm not sure that you've been through that exact process, but I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on on making that transition. We'd love to hear what you have to say for people that are going through that. I mean, it's easy. I mean, if you want to hit a lead target, go do a content syndication program. <laughs> you, know, you can get a million leads at a cost per lead of $15 or, some, or $3 or some crazy low number, or go out and do AdWords. You know, there are ways to get cheap leads. But as you know, then you go talk to the BDR team and say, what are you can actually converting? And they're going to say demo requests or a few different content assets that indicate high intent. In B2B enterprise SaaS, analyst reports. If somebody reads the Gartner Magic Quadrant or Forrester Wave, there's going to be more intent than if they read your BuzzFeed, 10 reasons why, blah, blah, right? <laughs> so if you're in the world where you are gold against leads, you just have to swallow the bitter pill of more leads is not always good for the business. In fact, often it, it is unhealthy because there's an opportunity cost. There's an opportunity cost of, of where you spend your day. Opportunity cost of where you spend your day, hidden cost and all of the sales resources wasted time on those types of people. Those two things I think are very large. I think the hidden cost on the sales side, I think sales reports qualitatively like, hey, um, none of these leads are converting. I think it's a waste of time. But if a CFO sat down and looked at a 500 or a thousand person company that's doing that and tried to quantify the hidden cost, it would be extraordinary. It would be absolutely <laughs> cool. So you mentioned that you, when you were at Acquia, you were, it was just, you know, pipeline, 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 quarter over quarter. Did you, did you know at that time that you should be going yeah. long-term or is this in hindsight, no. right? Cause I, I was in like kind of in that time frame too. And I wasn't thinking that way, right. I've kind of evolved in my thing and in, in my journey. Why, yeah. The false narrative of brand becoming a, a dirty word. There was a whole period where we ignored brand because brand wasn't measurable. You couldn't put your attribution software against it. There's no first touch, last touch, blended touch attribution model for a brand investment, at least not in the way we were thinking about it. So unfortunately, I think, you know, when your entire marketing plan is driven by a MarTech vendor like HubSpot or, you know, Marketo in my case, and again, I love those companies, but they were encouraging me to get to my numbers in an unsustainable way and maybe shame on me. So I never thought about the long-term implications of when I started at Acquia, we were, we were 46 million in ARR. When I ended, we were 140 roughly. And demand gen at 140 is much harder than it is at 46. <laughs> and chasing brute force quarter after quarter, you know, demand gen pipeline goals without the multiplier of a great brand, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. So by not, I always thought of that I hurt the company's chances of going public. Acquia was acquired a couple of years ago by Vista Equity for about mm -hmm. a billion. But I think we could have been a public company had I been smarter and had I thought about making brand investments much earlier on. Mm -hmm. And I think the company would have been able to get to our growth goals much easier than just that constant rat race of chasing the sort of funnel that HubSpot Marquette will tell you about. Mm -hmm. Right. And the um, I think that there's sort of like a couple things going on in the brand side. 
I think that one, you mentioned like more difficult to measure, definitely more difficult to measure than performance marketing. There's another thing that I see going on right now is where executives decide to call something brand in order to justify something that's no longer working. Yeah, yeah. And so the things that are, everyone says this, anyone that's listening to this podcast will definitely understand the things that people, executives will call brand, programmatic display ads, trade show booths. Those are probably the two main ones. Um, But like, that's what executives are starting to call it. No wonder it has a bad term. People are just putting the stuff in the graveyard that you maybe should consider not doing anymore and calling it brand. Meanwhile, the places where you actually build brand have changed. The places where they actually happen different than in 1997 or in 2005, the places are mainly on the internet now. And there are companies that are capitalizing in a huge way by making the transition over there. And so talk me through some of the things that you're doing today that are working the best. I know I know at a high level, sort of like what yeah. you've been doing, which is ultra cool. And I think a lot of people have something to learn here. Yeah, I mean, I'm so recorded future. We are a cybersecurity company in the cybersecurity market. You know, it is dominated. Brand is dominated by a bunch of, frankly, not legacy, maybe legacy. It's TV commercials. It's a Super Bowl ad. It's mm-hmm. Formula F1 sponsorships. Literally every company in the cybersecurity market bigger than 100 million ARR has some sort of auto racing sponsorship. <laughs> and these are expensive, right? These are three, four, five, ten million dollar campaigns. It's funny that companies who aren't much bigger than I know what my marketing budget is, and I know what these companies are spending on some of their brand campaigns, and it's just irrational to me. So we've all we've thought about we're really inspired at Recorded Future by Bloomberg. We think Bloomberg is just one of these companies that really gets it. And Bloomberg obviously makes money by selling terminals to traders effectively. Mm-hmm but they have a whole news organization. And we have the CMO of Bloomberg on our board. And in talking to her, we wanted to sort of create the Bloomberg model as a way for us to build brand. So we built a news site called The Record. And this is not a content marketing site. We're not writing BuzzFeed articles designed to get people into a funnel. This is not the sort of HubSpot approach to content. This is, we went out and hired the best journalists in the market, like literally the best journalists covering cybersecurity. We've got two of those journalists today. We've got a couple more on the way soon, knock on wood. And we are building a legitimate news site that we want to be the largest cybersecurity news site in the world. And the site is called The Record. It's The Record by Recorded Future. So Recorded Future is obviously, it is a, it's a church and state situation. You know, we are a tech company. The Record is a news site. The Record can cover editorially what it wants to cover. But we feel very strongly that if we have the number one cybersecurity news site, that that's going to have great benefits for Recorded Future, the tech company. And I don't have direct attribution. I don't have forms on the record. I can't tell you how many leads it's created. But I can tell you in our Slack channel, when we close a deal, often our AEs will say, hey, these guys love the record. They first heard of us because of the record. The record is their favorite trust, you know, most trustworthy news source in cybersecurity, it's been incredible. And this is an investment that, you know, frankly, costs less than your traditional trade show booth in one trade show. And yet this thing will be something that we will have, you know, over years and decades. I just, for me, I'd rather put my mental brain power and dollars into something that will sustain me for years mm-hmm. and not something that's a campaign. So no offense to my cybersecurity brethren, it might work for them, but what's worked incredibly well for us has been this more authentic way of building a community. 
And you mentioned what I would consider something like manual attribution or qualitative, you know, attribution data from the sales team, which is something that I've been leaning on for a majority of my career, um, because I think you get the real insights there. And so why do you think that a majority of enterprise SaaS marketers or companies, even not just marketers, but companies can't take that leap? What do you think is the gap? I think it's because it's honestly a little bit, you've got to have a CEO who supports it. So mm. you know, my CEO reported future, Christopher, is you know number one Bloomberg fanboy. So is very supportive of anything that you know effectively models us after Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. Another example is we we built a podcast, a guy named Greg Barrett, he used to run marketing here four years ago, started a podcast on security. And at this point, and we've now got 170 episodes, we've done it we every week for the last four years we've got the number one cybersecurity podcast. And it was an intentional strategy that we did week after week. And in the early days, no one listened and no one listened. And then people started to listen. Then we got anecdotal feedback that people love our podcast. Mm -hmm. It's another one of those brand weapons that we get to leverage. So I think one is, you know, the CEO has to buy off on this mentality. But the other part is you got to be confident. As a marketer, it's Mm -hmm. so easy. And I wasn't confident at Acquia. I was a first, it was my first big CMO job. So I'm trying to keep my job and not get fired for mm-hmm. missing my pipeline number. I have more confidence at Recorded Future because I've seen the movie and I know that like I will get fired in the long term if I don't build this brand, if I don't mm-hmm. invest a big chunk of my mental capacity and budget to it. So I think it's confidence. Like you, if you're going to be in a marketing leadership role, you've got to have confidence and patience to wait it out hitting your number quarter after quarter is probably not the path to what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, how do you set up the measurement between these two different platforms? Like how do you, I guess for people, like I, I imagine the questions being asked maybe in the early days is how do we even know if we're moving in the right direction or if we're just wasting our time? Maybe we'll yeah. start in the early days and then we'll talk about how it's probably gotten more sophisticated today. We're, we're right now just focused on building an audience. So I'm looking at traditional, uh, if I were a you know, media company, I'm looking at the same kinds of assets that, you know, numbers that media companies would look at. We have a newsletter subscription. So it started at zero and it's about 10,000 now. And, you know, we mm-hmm. want to build a large newsletter subscription base. We want traffic to go up. We want number of articles consumed by each visitor to go up. So we look mm-hmm. at a lot of the same metrics you would look at if you were a real news organization What we don't look at, you know, we can look at how many people come from the record to recorded future, obviously, but right now my charter is to build a massive audience. Mm -hmm. And and that is the only charter for this investment. Yeah, it's sort of what we're doing on our podcast and our events and different things like that. And I think there's a component, right? I'd love to to kind of like brainstorm with you on on the differences between volume of audience versus sort of like saying quality would imply that more volume means less quality, which is just not true, Um, but sort of to balance those two different things, right? Because there are definitely people on LinkedIn that have a million followers that get nowhere the engagement that you or I do, right? And so just because they were early on the platform, have a bunch of people that are connected with that nobody actually consumes their information anymore. And so aside from the audience growth, I imagine that you're looking at some type of consumption or engagement metrics to ensure that the audience is actually engaged. Yeah. I mean, it's easy for us because our reporters are writing exclusively about topics that are meaningful to our customers. Mm -hmm. 
So obviously in the cybersecurity world, there are lots of, of adversaries looking to damage governments and organizations, and our reporters are telling those stories. So if you're reading a story about a threat actor in China and their ransomware campaigns, happens to be that we sell software that can help organizations better understand that. So the fact that we're building an audience based off of content that happens to map nicely back to the intelligence platform that we sell at Recorded Future, frankly, that's enough connection for me. It's why we're hiring reporters who report on topics that mean something to our prospects, customers, and partners. Mm -hmm. I imagine, I'm not, I don't know the answer to this, so it'll be funny, but I imagine that you subscribe to a similar methodology of I do that I do, which is just looking at marketing in a holistic funnel through a website. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, look yeah. at it that way and then you can just measure how many, the way that I look at it. And I think those most simple, I think people overcomplicate marketing a lot. The simplest way to measure marketing's effectiveness. How many people are coming to us to buy and then actually buying? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so, it. and that would cover, it gives you a, a lot of freedom to build that media site. Right. And then you don't need attribution or direct, or you can build the podcast because as more people just come through the website, that's how you measure it. And then it gives the CMO a lot of flexibility on, okay, I'm going to place a bet on a podcast over here. I'm going to place a bet here. Um, I think that some CMOs that tend to work for CEOs that may subscribe to the Marketo HubSpot timeframe, or just frankly, don't, don't understand marketing that well, will need direct attribution in order to justify a podcast, which obviously is very difficult to do. And so would love maybe a couple of your thoughts on, on attribution as, as it relates to some brand marketing activities to try and give some people some confidence, right? Like you're clearly doing this. You're clearly having a lot of success. Like what can some people do or how can they change their thinking to start to take some of these steps that you've taken? Here's the, yeah, here's the thing. So if you are missing your numbers, don't go do the things that we're talking about. Like you, I mean, because this is, there's a short and long-term aspect to this. I think you can only start to think, and my mistake was even when I was hitting my numbers, I still wasn't thinking long-term. But first, make sure that you're hitting your numbers, optimize your funnel, you know, make sure you've got a great relationship with sales, make sure you, your BDR team is able to work leads and all the things that are to me are just blocking and tackling of building a modern SaaS engine. Mm -hmm. You do have to nail those. But the best time for you to start thinking about the long-term is when you start hitting the short-term goals. The minute you start to see some predictability in pipeline, take budget, take people, take dollars, and start to do, make the investments that are, you're planting the garden that's not gonna grow until next year, You know, start to make those investments that you can confidently, the best case is obviously, you're hitting your numbers and you're making brand investments. And that's what's happened, you know, bef happened before I joined Reported Future and has happened since. We've always hit our quarterly numbers, which has given us the flexibility to invest in these long-term projects like the record. You do have, to, and the dirty secret is you have to do both. But the minute you are hitting your objectives, every part of your dollar, every part of your budget, every part of your brain power, in my mind, needs to start going to these long-term investments you can make because those are the things that get you to your number a year from now. Mm -hmm. And I got to imagine that long-term whether it's for, for your thing or some of the things that we're working on is that over time, as you build your audience of people that believe in the things that you're doing, get value from the things that you're producing, that you can actually create a competitive advantage or what you had mentioned as a moat, yeah, right? Which is gonna be very difficult to catch up for the cybersecurity companies that I know of that waste $500,000 a month on Google ads. Yeah. It's gonna be really hard to change from that to building uh, a media entity that, that Tom's talking about here. 
or for my company in the same fashion. There are not a lot of companies that quote unquote compete with us that do anything like the way that we market, which is creating a moat on our business as well. Now, people think you've done a great job setting it up into the why and the when to think about it and different things like that. Now let's talk about the roadmap, right? So if somebody, CMO, they're hitting their goals, I think step one, I'll, I'll do number one, you already mentioned it, but you got to have the CEO that believes in this and gets marketing and different things like that. But after that, like to get to the future, or, or I'm not exact, forgot the name, right? The record, um, yep. to get to the, the record of where it is today, what are some of the high level logical steps in terms of talent, operations, intellectual property, strategy? How should people approach that? I think you've got to bring on somebody who can own it. So, you know, we have a VP here who owns brand and demand. So she owns the team that's chartered with hitting our daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly targets. And that's all that team wakes up. There's, you know, there's an owner and that's all that team wakes up and thinks about. But there's also another set of teams that own that all they think about are these long-term investments to them, whether we hit our pipeline target today or this week or next month doesn't matter. What matters is, are we making these investments in these scalable brand platforms like our podcast, like the mm -hmm. record, like some other things that we're not ready to announce yet? You know, that, there's somebody in our team who gets to own those and doesn't have the short-term pressure of going to hit the number. So I have brand and demand under one VP, and we've got dedicated resources across the team who own those different parts of the life cycle. The way I kind of draw it out is, you know, short term, I've got a team focused on making sure that we're hitting those numbers, creating pipeline, et cetera. Medium term, I've got a team, product marketing, who's focused on making sure that we're converting demand into ARR. And then long term, I've got a team that's focused on making sure that we're investing in these brand investments that will be the catalyst for everything we're going to do a year and beyond from now. And clear ownership and clear responsibilities and clear targets and most importantly, clear timeframes. Mm -hmm. like you don't need the record, which we launched last July, I think, did not need and still does not need to show business impact from the sense that there are. It needs to show impact from building an audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love the perspective. I've actually recommended it a couple of times. It's fascinating how aligned we are. I, I love it about recommending that the team that you have working on your podcast or organic social or community or events brand is free from the short-term marketing metrics that change behavior into short-term focus or would therefore deprioritize those things because they don't fit into your model or your time windows. I love that. I think that's a key takeaway for people that I believe in a lot. I've done this before at a company where I essentially owned brand and demand and was responsible. And I had to balance those on my own. Right. And so I think, but I think in a lot of companies, they don't do a podcast because the person that would do a podcast is subjected to short-term metrics this month or this quarter, and it's not going to help them get to it. So they just push it to the side and never do it. Yeah. And that's where I, I give Greg who worked here before me a lot of credit, you know, Greg owned demand gen and built this podcast. So I mm -hmm. think he, it takes this special kind of marketer who can look short-term and think long-term but I think the best way to solve that, finding those people, it's a unicorn, but specialize, hire somebody to think long-term, hire somebody to think short-term and, and goal them appropriately. Mm -hmm. What if we get more into like the actual inner workings of, of what you're doing, right? And so if we talk sure. through like the idea, um, aside from the, 
the VP who was going to own it, like who was the first hire? Was it a journalist? Was it something else? Like, and how did you go about trying to figure those things out for people? I'm trying to give some, some actionable stuff for people. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, I was going to say for our, our media property, it was super important for us to hire a real reporter. Not, this is not a content marketing investment, Mm -hmm. like no offense to content marketers, but we really wanted to do real reporting. So we Mm -hmm. hired somebody we believed could be an excellent reporter, but who would also serve as sort of the editor in chief and GM and a guy who would take a risk of coming to join a tech company from, you know, the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. So we hired somebody who who was frankly a bit of a unicorn in that. And but I think for and I don't know if my strategy is going to work for everybody. You know, for us, it works really great because there's just so much. I mean, if you look on any news site today, cybersecurity dominates the news, whether it's Colonial Pipeline or Dark Side Ransomware Gang. Like, so it's, it's a little bit unique for the cybersecurity industry, but I'm a huge fan of finding whoever's telling the most interesting stories in your market and hire them. Mm-hmm. Could be a reporter, could be a classic content marketer. You know, I've seen a lot of companies, you know, in the e-commerce space specifically hire people who are great at creating content about e-commerce. Mm-hmm. So whoever it is, find the best person at creating content in your industry and try to hire them. Yeah. And if they're reporters, it's really, if they are in the journalism world, I think a lot of journalists are seeing that they can now come work at companies and not sacrifice the, their journalistic integrity. Mm-hmm. This one's sort of out of left field, but aside from sort of like the root of where they came from, depending between a content marketer and a journalist, I'm wondering if you feel like there's any difference in the level of understanding or empathy for the audience or the buyer yeah. that is different between those two. And that's maybe why the journalist performs better in this role. The journalists are, they have a different approach. Again, nothing against content marketers, but most content marketers are inwardly facing. If you're a content marketer working on a site like the Wall Street Journal, you'd be writing opinion pieces. Like most content marketing is opinion pieces. Most of what journalists produce are well-researched, fact-checked stories that are, you know, coordinating internal, external, third-party validation. Mm-hmm. It's incredible the amount of work that goes into publishing a piece of news versus publishing an opinion blog post. So mm-hmm. the benefit to that is journalists just set the bar higher, I think. And I think when you bring on a journalist and you give them that space, the quality of what you get, they're going to go talk to 20 people before they publish an article where the content marketer is going to go read somebody else's piece and reword mm-hmm. it and publish that as net new thinking. Mm-hmm. As how do you see yourself continuing to innovate on this model, right? Like, so competition is relative, right? So there's going to be people that are going to follow you or people that are already doing it and who cares whether or not that happens. But what I'm more focused on is like, how do you keep up-leveling for your own audience, Yeah. right? The thing that comes to mind for me is, and I'm wondering, I don't know whether or not you do it yet, but are you thinking about introducing video that's more like a true like media network, uh, TV network or something like that? I'm going to give you a very strongly worded no comment. How does that? How does that say? No Love comment. That. I, I can comment. We're working on something like that. People, Could I do so. something like that? Would, would, would you do something I, like that? I, I think it. I think it would be a a strong idea. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, we we are enamored <laughs> by you know talking about Bloomberg. What Bloomberg Quick Take does as an organization is pretty impressive. We love the reach of YouTube. YouTube, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a huge MKBHD fan and the audience that he's built. If I can be the MKBHD of cybersecurity on YouTube, I'd feel pretty good about that. Mm-hmm. So no comment. I, I will not comment anymore on the topic. Of course. And so we got real deep into that. If we start to zoom out more broadly, 
what are some of the the things that you see from marketers in general as large opportunities, or maybe we can go in a different direction, which would be uh, people that are missing opportunities that are clear. You know, back to the sort of, back to the roots of, I was trained to be a marketer by Mike Volpe and John Miller. Mm-hmm. I think we're, you know, I, I was a computer science and math major. I am not creative at all. And what I appreciate most about marketing now is when I see acts of creativity executed well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one thing to be creative, but being creative and being able to execute are a combination of skills that to me as a CMO have, it's been impossible to find people like that. And when you find people who are good at both, they are absolute difference makers in marketing teams. Mm-hmm. So I think the problem is for a long time in marketing, we got so enamored with the math side of it. And we became unenamored with the Don Draper side of it, the creativity side of it. And we over-rotated, which tends to be what we do in marketing and I think now we've heavily rotated back to where creativity matters. The tools and platforms make it easy for us to reach people. Like that's not the problem. The problem isn't the tools. The problem is what we're saying to people is boring. The -hmm. way we're saying it to them is boring. And I think people that can make marketing not be boring are incredibly valuable. And the people that are listening to this and being like, hey, like I'm a math marketer, performance marketer. Tom just said it and I'll say it too. Like we both have been there. Right. Like we've both been in a place where I wanted every single dollar to have a direct output with attribution, moving through lead scoring, tracking all that. We've all done it. What we're seeing is a is a as a change in the market based on how the consumer is changing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I want like I want somebody who's great at copywriting. Like that's a skill that requires some expertise that you don't just find. I'm a pretty good writer. I don't know if I'm a great copywriter. Like copywriting is like this most, it's an incredibly rare skill to find. Mm-hmm. I, we, you know, we need copywriters at Recorded Future. If you're a great copywriter, drop me a line. That's a skill set that, you know, incredibly valuable to, uh, mm-hmm. to a marketing team. You know, creative people are incredibly valuable. People that can do design are incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, those are skills that we just lost for the past 10 years we, we, we just lost sight of how mm-hmm. important those roles are to, mar- to modern marketing teams. Totally. And I feel like throughout the, the we're just going to call it the math era, <laughs> the last 10 or 15 years, throughout the math era, creativity is, has been thought of as a commodity for a lot of companies. They don't invest in it. They don't value it and different things like that. And I think we're seeing, as you mentioned, we're seeing a skew back. We're very heavily investing in creative right now. We're building out a whole arm because what we've seen across running media for 30 SaaS companies simultaneously inside of paid social is that the companies that have consistent, well-thought-out creative versus the ones that don't, the ones that have creative perform dramatically better because it really, yeah. it's just a, pr- it's a proof point with data across a lot of different companies about how much it matters. And so I'm pushing companies to think more deeply about it just like you are. Let me give you a quick rant on the math era too, lead scoring. Lead scoring is legit the dumbest thing that marketers have ever invested time in. Think about how these legacy marketing automation things implement lead scoring points. Come to a webinar, get three points. Open an email, you get one point. Visit the careers page, we'll take a point away. Like who got to decide? And then if any lead over 20 points goes to BDRs. Like I was a math major. That is the least statistically significant way to identify a good lead. Like who decided it's one point versus two? Who decided it's 20 point versus 30? No one ever actually does the analysis to know if any of that stuff actually matters. 
I once did a test at Acquia where we had a, a Marketo lead scoring model that we built, the points model. And then we had a, a B test, which was no lead scoring at all. And we didn't tell sales. We just said, all right, these are all qualified MQLs, except half the MQLs were just random leads. Half the MQLs were scored with Marketo as qualified. Guess which leads converted better? The ones that weren't scored, of course. It didn't have any, it had negative impact on it when you mm. actually did the math. So I literally cannot stand, speaking of the math era, mm -hmm. that whole lead scoring ridiculousness that marketing automation vendors used to pitch. Yeah. It's meant to try and prioritize the leads that you send to sales, but sales doesn't want any of those, any of the no. ones that hit that type of score. And so the interesting thing, right, because I believe in this a lot, the interesting thing for people is what is the alternative, Tom? What should they do instead? I mean, I think the answer is people will raise their hand when they're ready to have a, that kind of a sales conversation with you. I think you've got to just mm -hmm. optimize for finding ways to convert high intent people. Could be a demo request in SaaS could be a specific type of content, but I'm a big fan of letting people tell you when they're ready. I do love product-led product, product -led growth models too, because those are also high intent models. If somebody gets into a specific part of my free trial, that's a high intent signal that's gonna work a lot better than passing over the guy who opened 20 emails and went to 13 webinars. I think that you've got to architect for a high intent funnel and find ways to convert people when they're ready to talk to you rather than when you think you're ready to talk to them. Mm -hmm. 100%. And the way that I say it is lead scoring is binary. They're either firmographically qualified to buy and they asked to talk to your sales rep or they didn't. Yeah. So one yeah. or a zero. And then the point after that is I think what's challenging for people is if that is the system, then you need to have clarity on how you can move that system forward. And I think that's where people fall down, right? Because when you move out of leads, aka collecting email addresses and needing to actually get people that want to buy, you need to change your marketing model dramatically. Yeah. And another one of those things that it's hard to do when your engine's working, it's working, it's working, and then it stops working. Like mm -hmm. that's where CMOs get fired is when that moment where what they did stops working at a certain scale because you didn't get ahead of the modern, the reality and mm -hmm. how things change over time. You know, I think it's, and that's where the new CMO is going to come in and make that change and get credit for, you know, the process change they implemented. Like that's what happens. Yeah. And what's, what is the thing that's plaguing a lot of CMOs right now? I know because a lot of them come and talk to me about it and try and solve it is the overinvestment in Google ads that is get they're getting crushed right like google ads was at its prime almost a decade maybe more than a decade ago now but companies have still been living off of it collecting leads to a point where some companies are spending a million dollars a month on google ads yeah. and the and at the place now where the cost per clicks are going up the cost per leads are going up and you have your cost per lead going up and your conversion rates going down and your unit economics getting to a place where you need to make a change or this is not going to scale anymore and so um, that, I think that's one core example of, I'm sure there are many, but that's one core example of what you're saying is that had, hadn't found a new tactic to drive growth, been invested in majority, like 85% or more of your entire program's budget going onto Google ads. <laughs> and you're just like, oh yeah. man. I mean, we're, we're well over 150 million in ARR at this point. And I think we might spend 10K a month in Google, maybe less. It's all you need to. I think, you know, most of the companies that we work with, depending on the TAM is like, five to 25K a month on Google, because all we're looking for is 
people that are looking for blah, 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 software, blah, 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 platform, tool, pricing, vendor, competitor, alternative. Like, and when you siphon off to those types of terms, there's not a ton of volume. Yeah. Yeah. We're, you know, we, we experiment with lots of channels. We're experimenting with, you know, we're six X customers. So we use six cents. Mm-hmm. We're doing some interesting things on Facebook and LinkedIn, combining six cent intent data with job titles and mm-hmm. other things you can get through other platforms. But Google, I don't think is an effective B2B SaaS channel anymore. Mm-hmm. I think they're a better place to put dollars. With you 100%. I think there's a micro space in Google where it might make sense. But even that, like when you look at it, a majority of the revenue that gets reported on Google ads is through branded terms. Nobody looks yeah. at it at that granularity to know. So they're like, oh, Google ads is returning a 1.8 X ROI. This is great. Six, you know, seven month CAC payback on advertising. And they're like, oh, wait, 90% of them were branded terms. I guess like on non-branded, we're at a way negative ROI. Some agents, you paid some agency a ton of money to build out all those campaigns for and do all that keyword research. And it led to nothing more than your own internal team could have done. Mm-hmm. Buy your keyword, a couple, and like you said, pricing, competitors, alternatives. Mm-hmm. Cool, Tom. So if you've listened to the podcast before, you're going to know what's coming next. If you haven't, I won't be offended. At this point, it's the tables are turned to you. And if you have a couple of topics or questions that you want to talk with me about, you are in the driver's seat, my friend. When you're talking to potential customers for your business, what disqualifies a customer in your mind immediately? Like, who do you know immediately you will not have success in working with? Not philosophically aligned to our model and metrics. So the core sort of like the assumptions that a lot of people find to be true that have accepted to be true from the marketing automation era that I believe are no longer true. If you cannot get over those humps of leads is the number one metric, that we need attribution on awareness channels like Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, that it should happen fast because we're do you know, we're used to a lead gen model where you just like turn on an ad and you get 30 email addresses and you're pumped. And that when you're creating demand, that's not how it works. You're moving someone that is not interested in buying your products all the way through to a point where they are interested in buying, which takes time. And so philosophical alignment is the number one, um, obviously we have firmographic criteria and a bunch of other stuff, but the number one DQ is people just aren't, aren't aligned with the way that we see the world, which doesn't set up for a good relationship. And then my other question is, so I philosophically believe in privacy. You know, I'm a big Apple guy and Apple released a bunch of iOS updates yesterday that I think are going to kill the MarTech industry. So like by default, Safari is going to hide IP addresses and by default, Apple Mail is going to block pixel tracking, like all the techniques that all the MarTech vendors use to build up that cookie profile, to build up that unique identifier. I believe we're going to live live in a non-identifiable world. How does marketing change when all of a sudden we lose cookies, we lose sort of those, you know, customer profiles you can aggregate? Like how how does marketing change in that world? You build things that people like that are not interruptive, where people seek out the things that you're building because they're valuable and they're specific and narrow to them. And so the easiest example that I can give is like, there's people that spend all this time building complex retargeting flows and do a top of funnel content and then try and retarget someone with a case study and then try and retarget someone with a demo. And when you look at the whole thing, it's like complete waste of effort and money. And I'm over here with buyers 
that could buy our stuff that are listening to our podcast for two hours on a Saturday morning while they walk the dog. And that's the difference. And so I think that the, I think this type of situation here creates a massive advantage for marketers that know how to build brand that know that are focused on the customer that know how to create content that resonates with those people that is not salesy, that is helpful, that creates affinity to their brand that creates affinity to their narrative or category as well. And that's where I think that the, the marketers will shine over the next five years. I think that the things that have been going on with the retargeting and lookalike audiences and this algorithmic bidding that Google put in place that just drives a bunch of high volume trash into your funnel. And so all those different things have been a crutch for marketers over a, a very long period of time. Some of the marketers sort of made adjustments. Other marketers have been sort of hiding under it because of the metric that they're scored on, which is leads or conversions or cost per conversion versus cost per SQO or customer acquisition cost. And so once you change the metrics, you start to go on under other scrutiny, and then they're actually going to have to change the tactics to start moving into the brand camp. And that's sort of like how I see it playing out. I think this is a, I think this is a, great, a great thing for buyers for strong marketers and even like marketers that aren't strong, this is a forcing function for you to move to do things that your buyers want. I think it's, and now's the perfect time. Like I think we're just getting started on the death of whatever era we wanted to call the era <laughs> that was driven by, by direct response and ad tech and MarTech. Like I think we're going to get back to the eighties or we're going to get back to the nineties when you had to be creative. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably a good thing. Like the technology was great. The technology let people who are good with technology lead. But mm-hmm. I think that world, if you're not preparing for that world now, like there's going to be no cookie. There's literally going to be no more cookie. And I think that reality is going to happen sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. So good luck. <laughs> Again, like it's weird to, to look at some of the different marketers that are listening to this podcast. People that are listening, you can think to it for yourself about what are some of the signals that I've like, um, it's interesting. I'm trying to think about a good example on this one. And so like in 2017, you could run account-based targeting on Facebook ads natively, no tools, nothing. I could go in there and say, I want to run ads to people that work at Coca-Cola or work at Boston Children's Hospital or work at Recorded Future. And if they had their, their company name in there, you could literally target them and then segment off by job title or any other thing that you want. And you could run that. And that was a opportunity. And I took advantage of that opportunity when we were marketing to hospitals. And in 2018, Cambridge Analytica happened and that opportunity went away. Hmm. And then another one where we saw that we were able to measure custom conversions inside of Facebook and Instagram to run attribution so that you could attribute brand marketing campaigns to demo conversions based on someone that saw the ad and never clicked on it, which is a massive part of how Facebook and Instagram work behaviorally. And then iOS 4, so we, we were living off of that for a while because we could easily justify how well it was working without direct response conversions. And then iOS 14 happened and that went away. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about all of, there are slivers of opportunities where windows open and then they close, whether they get closed by environmental changes, security and legal, buyers changing or different things like that. And I believe that there's a certain skill as a marketer, which is mainly experience paired with intuition to see that opportunity before the window closes. Be interested to hear what you think about that. I mean, anybody who looks at their Facebook 
who's had to go and accept all the Facebook terms of service changes in the past couple of months know how much iOS 14 and pretty sure how much iOS 15 is going to change that world. Like it was like the biggest change. Remember when Google used to provide keywords, how awesome that was? <laughs> oh my God, that was, <clears throat> that was the golden era of marketing because <clears throat> then you could really start to tie things to specific search keywords. And when that went away, we all thought the world was going to end, but the world didn't end. It just changed the tactics. And I think we're like, everybody is trying to find out the next way to exploit the loophole that gives them that little sliver of opportunity, or you just go build the long-term, you know, stop trying to find hacky ways to get an audience, mm -hmm. go do the hard work. Mm -hmm. right? That's the reality we're in now. Maybe there'll be some other things people can exploit, but I sort of feel like, like Cambridge Analytica is a good example, but long-term, I think the marketing that's going to win is going to be the marketing that's relevant to the audience, that's interesting, that's, you know, that is authentic. And, and that stuff is always going to work. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a perfect place to stop, Tom. This I can't believe this is the first time we've met. I love your perspective. It's been great to chat with you and really appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, Chris, thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.